Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live in the Washington, D.C. area, Saturday mornings from 9 till 10 on the following frequencies. 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, and 1039 FM HD2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And lots of things going on in technology, as always. Uh, the Google versus Oracle lawsuit is finally going to make it to the Supreme Court. And I'm going to explain why that particular lawsuit is so important to innovation and software development. Uh, Apple, of course, is still trying to get those tariffs waived. They're not really happy with all of the tariffs that we have with, uh, with China. And France is going to launch a nationwide face recognition system. And the folks there are not all that happy. Today, we are going to feature in Profiles in IT, Augusta Ada King, Countess of Lovelace. Known in short, Ada Lovelace. She was the first computer programmer. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. Yes, we got an email from Dave Miles. Hello, Dr. Shirts. Help. I've got five Wi-Fi-enabled high-definition cameras around my house. Each one is working, but each bought, but I bought them all separately, probably went on sale. And they all have their own software. Now, getting in and out of each software program to view my cameras is driving me crazy. Do you know of a user-friendly software package that will consolidate all my Wi-Fi network cams into one program to monitor? Love the radio show. I hear it by podcast every week. Regards, Dave Everett in Washington, state of Washington. Well, Dave, you're... you're uh, to get these cameras all using the same software package, you have to get some sort of common application programming interface. I'm going to suspect that all your cameras have a web interface built into them. And that web interface could be accessed with a browser. Uh, you probably have software that, individual software that links to them. Now, that software may actually do some port translation so you can see these webcams. Uh, outside of your firewall, and that translation of the ports may be done by the by the software. So I'm I'm going to think that you need to get the um, IP address of your cameras. You can you can do that by looking at your Wi-Fi router, and then try to log into those cameras with the browser, and see whether you can whether you can see a web page because that would might be the easiest way to do it. Now, you, you might also get, uh, there, there is another program out there. I haven't tried it. It's called Simple Webcam Viewer. It's from SourceForge. So simply search for Simple Webcam Viewer. From, it's, a free, it's a free download. And that one piece of software may work for all of your, all of your webcams. But I'm, I'm thinking there's a way to do it using the, using the uh, browser interface. Uh, 
Uh, you might get back to me with the exact brand names of your cameras, and I'll I'll do a little bit more more research to see what uh, how we specifically could access all of them with the same browser. Okay, we got an email from June in Burke. Doc, have you ever researched out data blockers for USB connections? I sometimes use a I sometimes want to use a public USB hub. I know it's not safe, and I want to be able to block my data. Thanks. Security prone in Burke, Virginia. Well, uh, Junior, right. USB connections are designed to work for both data as well as power transfer. And there's no strict barrier between the two. And security researchers have figured out a way where you could abuse a USB connection that's being used for power, and you could deliver a secret payload to the uh, smartphone. Uh, this is called juice jacking because you're, you know, you plug it in to get some juice and then they hijack it and they put malware on your phone. It's called juice jacking. Now, uh, there are really no examples of juice jacking in the wild, but computer researchers have developed some pretty nifty programs that, that, are, um, that really do it quite well. For instance, there's one called MacTans. It was presented at Black Hat 2013 Security Conference. And that's a malicious USB wall charger that could deploy malware in, in iOS devices and in, in iPhone devices. So what, what, what they did here is they basically took a, a charger and, you, and you'd leave it in the wall like you forgot it. And that charger then has the malware built into it. In 2016, security researcher Sammy Kamkar took the concept further with KeySweeper. And it was a stealthy device camouflaged as a functioning USB wall charger, and it wirelessly and passively sniffs, decrypts, and logs and reports back over cell phone connections all the keystrokes of any Microsoft wireless keyboard in the vicinity. Now, following Camcar's release of KeySweeper, the FBI sent out a nationwide alert warning organizations against using USB chargers. Now, the most common way is, you know, these pluggable USB chargers. They're portable things. You plug them. Now, what I... And, you know, and, and somebody who's going to do malware, they're just going to leave one of those behind, and people would use it, plug it in, and boom, they would be infected. So frequently they, you know, you could see if you would be in an airport that would have, uh, say, people from a security agency there, and you might want to just try to get somebody who was who, who was doing secure work uh, with, their, uh, with, their, with their smartphone. And... Um, so now there are ways to uh, protect yourself, June. I mean, there's really and there are no examples in the wild, but researchers have have made up very specific case studies where they've worked. Um, now, what I do, I I always use the AC power outlet. I don't use the USB charging station. They always have a place where you can plug in something, so I just use my use my AC adapter and I plug it in, and that's completely safe. Um, you could also consider buying a portable charger. I've got this. 25,000 amp hour battery. I just plug my iPhone in now, so I don't I don't really have to charge my iPhone now whenever I'm traveling. It's, that's good for a few days, so that's actually a pretty good option. Now, if you're really worried about things and you like to use the USB cables, they have a no data transfer cable. You can buy these you can buy these no data transfer cables on Amazon. They have the connections that are built in for power to produce to provide power to your to your uh, smartphone, but they have disabled the connections where the data transfer occurs. So these 
these no data transfer cables would, would completely protect you. You just, um, you just plug it in and no data can be transferred. Now, they also have uh, devices that, where you can plug it in, and these, these are data blockers. There's one device which is called um, SyncStop, and there's another device called Juice Jack Defender. And these are basically, they, they plug into the US, they plug into the public USB port, and then your phone plugs into it. And these basically have done this. They've just disabled the, uh, the connections for, for power transfer. Now, SyncStop used to be called USB Condom, but they decided they better change the name. <laughs> yeah, to probably a good idea. They decided to change the name to, to SyncStop. You know, it wasn't so offensive or Juice Jack Defender. Now, there have been no active examples of this juice jacking in the wild, actually. So people are worried about it because it could happen. The other thing that's happened in the last, since those com- have come out, both the Android and the iOS devices incorporate pop-ups. So whenever you plug into a USB plug and it tries to do data transfer, it warns you with a pop-up and it says, will you accept data or not? And so with that pop-up, that does provide a certain degree of additional protection. But they could still have malware where, where they might be able to still infect your system and go around the pop-up. But I don't think it's such a big uh, threat for you. But if you're worried about it, I would just... Uh, use the uh, suggestions that I gave you. Dear Doc and Jim, my son has been begging me for an iPhone 11 every day. I finally gave in and got him one for his birthday. Then after he had a, he, he kept his iPhone 7 around, um, and he has his iPhone 11. And that, after I got him the iPhone 11, my phone started giving out. My battery started dying, so I decided I'd take over his iPhone 7 because the iPhone 7 is good enough for me. And what did she find on his iPhone 7? Uh, no, no. Is that where we're going <laughs> no, here? No, 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 no. They didn't find anything on the iPhone 7. Uh, but the problem is whenever she would, like, um, look at – whenever she would say somebody would connect uh, – whenever anybody would connect to her phone or send her something with AirDrop, the name of her phone, it was still named after her son. His name was there, not hers. Mm-hmm. And so she said, I, I don't like my son's name that's showing up whenever I'm logging into different, different apps. How can I change the name of this phone from so it's my phone and not his phone? Well, um, Bo, uh, Lori, it's very easy to do. You can, you can do that quite easily in the iPhone. You just go to settings, and then you go to general, and then you click on about. And then you'll tap on the name of the device, and you'll see your son's name there. Just tap on that. The keyboard comes up and just name it anything you want. And then once you then click done, after that, your phone will have a new name and your son's name will be gone. We got a, an email from Barbie in Reston. Dear Tech Talk, I recently learned that every email sent on my iPhone includes something at the bottom that says sent from my iPhone. Now, I, I don't like that on my emails. There's There are times when I'd rather not let the person know that I'm sending them an email from my iPhone. You know, they might think, you know, I'd like them to think I'm in the office using the office computer, there, there for instance. And, but you could be in the office using your iPhone. You could be in the office using your iPhone. So uh, I just don't want it to say that. Well, it it's very easy to change. That's that's what they call the signature field, what's down at the bottom. That's just very get easy. rid of it, right? Yeah, just get rid of it. It's very easy to change this. You tap on settings, then scroll down till you see something called mail. Tap on mail. Then scroll down in the mail window until you find something called signature, and you'll have a choice. You can change the signature for one of your email accounts or all your email accounts. Um, I actually have three on mine, but I, I just tapped all the accounts. And then you can remove 
sent from my iPhone. Or you can fill in something else. You can say, you know, whatever you want to say. You can make it, you know, you can make it a business signature that's right, right there with your iPhone. Whatever you want to do, you can change it. And then once you are done, uh, just press the home key to return to the home screen, and it's saved. You're you're good to go. And that signature block will be on every single email that you send. You could also have a different signature block for the different email accounts. You got you might have a personal one and a business one. So you could set it up where your business email account would be just like your office. So it looks like you're in your office and not on your cell phone. We got an email from Alice in Alexandria. Dear Doc and Jim, I was expect I'm expecting guests over the holidays and I'm dreading the following question. Can I use your computer? I cannot deny them, but I don't know what they're going to do with it, especially the kids. What are my options? Alex, Alice and Alexandria. Well, Alice, that is a problem, and you really have to let them use it. Well, first of all, I, I would enable a guest account on your computer. Every modern operating system has a guest account, and the guest account doesn't have any rights. They can't install things. So you install a guest account with very limited rights. They can't like if they can't download something that's malware-ish like and install it on your computer. Uh, <clears throat> so you can, if you want to know how to enable the guest accounts, you can simply Google guest account and then put your operating system like guest account Windows 10, and it'll tell you exactly how to set it up. Now, the second thing I would do if you're going to let people on your computer is I would do create a disk image backup of your P, of your PC. And you could, you could do a complete disk image on, on an external hard drive. That'd be the cheapest way to do it. Then that way, if, if they do something that totally screws up your PC, you can restore it all from the disk image. That just gives you really great backup. Now I'd remove any passwords from that are, that are saved in your browser, just in case they happen to log into your user account, or if you leave it open and they just get on there, I'd, I would clear all the browser passwords. Then, you know, and I, if you've got any notes of paper where, you know, sometimes people write their passwords down on a little piece of paper and they put it beside the computer, I would get rid of all those scraps of paper with your passwords beside the computer. And finally, I'd make certain that you have your antivirus installed and up to date. If you don't have an antivirus, I'd recommend you get Avast, A-V-A-S-T. It's free and it's very effective. And I think you will be good to go if you make these small changes. Happy holidays. Yes. We got an email from Tulkin Chantilly. Dear Doc, I used to watch Netflix on my computer, but it got fried in a lightning storm. <laughs> Ouch. I've decided I really don't need a computer now, and I'm not going to be replacing it. I watch Netflix on my iPhone 7, but I'd really like to watch it on my 32-inch Samsung TV. Now, family friend said I should be able to connect my phone to the TV through the HTML port, but he isn't sure. My first question is, do you think I can connect it to this to the Samsung? And if I can, will it be expensive? And what do I need to buy? Well, all, if your TV set has an HDMI input, and if, you're, if you purchased your TV in the last five, six years, it will have an HDMI input, you're good to go. So what you have to do is you've got to get a... Um, an adapter that goes from the lightning connection on your iPhone to a digital AV adapter, lightning the digital AV adapter. So at one end it's going to have the lightning adapter. At the other end it's going to have a it is going to have a female HDMI connector. 
then what you'll have to get is an HDMI cable that will connect from that adapter to your TV. And once you do that, as soon as you do that, you're, and then you, then you change the input, data, input source on your TV to the HDMI connection that you plugged your phone to. As soon as you do that, your screen will be imaged on the, on the TV. So if you're watching Netflix, boom, you get Netflix. The sound and everything comes through. Now, the problem is if you're using your phone to watch Netflix and then you get a phone call, I mean, it's very disruptive. I mean, it just it disrupts everything. So I actually think you're better off getting a Chromecast device for $35. You can plug it in the HDMI port. And with the Chromecast device, you can simply, um, you can simply connect. You can actually stream media. You can stream stream uh, you can you, you can you can do that very easily with the Chromecast device what you're doing is you're casting your iPhone to the TV so instead of having a hardwire connection you basically open up Netflix in the Chrome browser and then you cast it to the TV and it will mirror the image so that way you can wirelessly connect to your your TV through Chromecast, which which works uh, quite well, but you still have the same problem. If somebody calls you, boom, you're going to be interrupted. Um, you also have an option if you want to get Netflix on your TV. You could you could get uh, a Roku device. A Roku is about thirty five dollars, and then you can download the Netflix app onto Roku. So I probably. I go, of all of these options, I'd probably go with Roku because the Roku device is getting cheaper and cheaper, and you and you can install a lot of different apps on Roku. Plus, you know, you can have Amazon Prime, you can have Netflix. Plus, they have a lot of free movies that are available in the Roku channel. So there you go, Tuk. I hope you enjoy streaming media on your Samsung TV. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. You can watch us do the program live by downloading the Periscope device to your app. Let's try that the other way. You download the Periscope app to your device and follow us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford 
Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Augusta Ada King, the Countess of Lovelace. Oh, I, oh, that's a different Lovelace <laughs> that, we're talking yeah, about right, today. Oh, never mind. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. They call her Ada Lovelace. Mm-hmm. Lovelace is just a very famous name here it in America is. for some it reason. Is. I guess we'll get into that later, perhaps, we will. or will we not? Augusta Ada Lovelace is best known as the first computer programmer, having worked on Charles Babbage's analytical engine, which was a mechanical computer. Lovelace was born December 10th, 1815. Now, she was the daughter of Lord Byron, the, the poet, and his wife, Lady Byron. Now, she's quite interesting in that Byron had many, many children, but Ada was the only legitimate child of Byron ah. born to his wife. All the other children were born to other women. So Lord Byron was quite the poet and he the was, ladies' man. He was baby daddy. Yes, he was. Now, her mother wanted her to learn mathematics and not poetry because she thought that poetry had led her father into a dark, dark world, and she wanted to keep Ada redirected out of Lord Byron's dark world. So she wanted— thought that poetry could lead you into a dark, dark world. Well, you know, they, she, well, they, you know Lady Byron's—Lord Byron, all he did was write poetry and— And mess around. And mess around. There so you go. so she said— That was her experience. So she then. linked the poetry to the— Messing around. To the messing got around, it. and she said, I want Ada— to be pure as new fallen snow. So I don't want her to have any poetry. So she taught her to learn. She taught her mathematics. And she had tutors come in to teach her mathematics. Now, actually, Ada actually did like poetry. So she also did poetry. She excelled at both mathematics and poetry. In fact, when she was writing poetry, she saw math built into poetry, you know, with all the, the rhymes and the cadence. There's kind of a mathematical infrastructure yes, with, within mm-hmm. poetry. In that. And she, she could she was com- trying to combine those ideas with mathematics. Now, Lovelace, Ada Lovelace, believed that intuition and imagination are critical to effectively applying mathematical and scientific concepts. And she valued metaphysics as much as mathematics. Because both of those she viewed as tools for exploring the unseen world around us. She was actually quite, uh, quite creative in her own right. After, by, by, ni- by 1832, when she was 17, her mathematical abilities began to emerge. And her interest in mathematics dominated the, the rest of her adult life. Now, she was presented at court, you know, when they have the coming out party at age 17. And she became a popular belle of the season. In part because of her 
brilliant mind. People were already noticing her mathematical ability. Now, Lovelace first met Charles Babbage in June of 1833. He was at Cambridge. He was, he was, Charles Babbage was at the same, he, had, he held the same position that Newton did at Cambridge. And Newton, of course, invented calculus. And is, uh, is also the same position that, that Stephen Hawking's recently had at Cambridge. So this was a very prestigious position there at Cambridge. And he was a very prestigious mathematician. Uh, Babbage met uh, met Ada through their mutual friend Mary Somerville, who was uh, who was tutoring Ada Lovelace. Now Babbage invited Lovelace to see the prototype for his difference engine. Now this difference engine was a mechanical computer that was designed to print out uh, um, astrological tables, or tables of the planets moving around, and so it was it was calculating planet locations. And it was going to print that out. And so it was a difference engine and cranking along. Now, this, this particular mechanical computer, the prototype was huge, and it would be powered with a steam engine because <laughs> it had to – it took – there was a lot of, of you know, because there were gears and things moving back. It took a lot of force. So they had a steam engine to power it. And he got the British government to fund this difference engine, and he worked on it. And worked on it, worked on it. Never could quite get it to work because it kept jamming. Uh, he worked on the difference engine for 20 years. And ultimately, the government pulled the funding. It was never actually finally built. When he, After a while, he got tired of the difference engine. And he came up with this other idea of the analytic engine. And uh, I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, when Babbage first met uh, Augusta Ada King, that was her name when they met, he called her the, enchant- the Enchantress of Numbers. The Enchantress <laughs> of Numbers. Uh, and he was I've very, never used that no, term en- before. Enchantress of Numbers. Uh, and he was impressed with her intellect. Now, that was in 1833 when Babbage and Lovelace met. Now, Ada got married in 1835 to a guy by the name of William King. So then... Her name became Augusta Ada King. But shortly after that, William King was made Earl of Lovelace. And Ada became the Countess of Lovelace. So then her name became Ada Lovelace. Now, in the 1940s, now, uh, the problem is, even though her mom had Focused her on mathematics so she wouldn't go down the dark side like her father. She was she was like scandalous. She scandalized the entire family. She had extramarital affairs. <laughs> she was, Sorry, I digress. She she was into gambling. She she apparently lost more than. Sorry. She lost more than 3,000 pounds on horses in the, in the 1840s. That I wish I could lose 3,000 pounds. Oh, yeah. <laughs> never mind. And she was trying to perfect the mathematical model for, for making successful large bets. And she formed a syndicate, and people put in their money, based, you know, hoping that with her mathematical genius that they could win. Turns out she, she lost. She was so good at it. She lost. She ended up owing the syndicate Thousands of pounds. The syndicate. The, yeah. the, the British mafia. Huh? That's right. Now, Ada was it. particularly interested in Babbage's next device, the analytic engine, because this just didn't crank out a table. You could actually program it to do different things. 
This was also a steam-powered mechanical computer. <laughs> steam-powered. It's steam-powered. Now, <laughs> in, in 1840, Bab- Babbage gave a seminar at the University of Turin. This is uh, Turin is in northern Italy. Right. About his analytic engine. And there was a guy by the name by, by Luigi... Menabre. Luigi yeah, Menabre. If expected him to be involved in the gambling situation. That's right. Well, Luigi transcribed Babbage's lecture uh, into French. Now, I, I don't quite, I mean, Turin is in Italy, but, uh, but he decided to transcribe it into French. And so, and he published it in an article. Then between 1842 and 1843, Ada translated the article from French to English, and she supplemented it with an elaborate set of notes where she explained what it could be done. For instance, in note G, she described an algorithm for the analytical analytical engine to compute Bernoulli numbers. Now, this was considered to be the first algorithm ever written specifically for implementation on a computer. And it included, you know, branches, loops, all the, all, the, all the programming constructs were built into this thing, and she invented them. Now, Lovelace is now widely considered to be the first computer programmer, and her methods are recognized worldwide as having, having, as, as, uh, having written the first computer program. Now, Ada saw something in the computer, actually, that, that Babbage failed to see. Babbage thought that his, number, that his analytic machine was just numbers. You know, you would just calculate numbers. You know, like you calculate a Bernoulli number. Mm-hmm. But she realized that if you can compute numbers and you can assign symbols to those numbers, like letters or like musical notes, that you could actually do something beyond what Babbage envisioned, and you could make a general-purpose computer that would manipulate symbols. So she made the mental transition from it being a calculator to it being a general-purpose computer simply by viewing these numbers as a way to represent symbols. And that allowed her then to visualize more complex uh, processes and more complex computer programs. Lovelace died at age 36 on November 27, 1852, from uterine cancer. And it was probably, the death was probably accelerated by the bloodletting that her physicians were doing back then when people got sick. Her her illness lasted several months. Mm -hmm. In May 1979, the new DOD-1 programming language was named Ada in her honor. So there you go. Everything you want to know about. Ada Lovelace. Indeed. Hope you're paying attention yes. because your knowledge just imparted by Dr. Schertz could turn into free food by playing the pop quiz coming up here on Tech Talk Radio. Heard every Saturday on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.9 FM HD 2, 103.5 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County at 104.5 FM. On the web at stratford.edu. And you can watch us do the program by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Ah, uh, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Please be seated. I know you're they really, are sitting. They're just really short. excited about this. Because later in the show, I'm going to show everyone a mechanical computer that I brought into the studio. And yet, another reason why you should watch us on Periscope That's because this right. is a Periscope exclu- exclusive. Exclusive. We're it. we're gonna we're gonna get to see an actual mechanical computer that I brought in. I don't have a steam engine. I've Thank got a goodness. little. I have a little lever that I push back and forth to run my mechanical okay. computer. All right. But it's only three bits. Or now, of course, this is not simply a radio show. No. This is a classroom of the airways. Yes. And if you get the right answer to the pop quiz, which is the way we assess whether you've learned anything, you'll win tickets to fine dining as well as an A-plus for today's show. Yes. Now, earlier in the show, I talked about uh, Augusta Ada King, Countess of Lovelace. Mm-hmm. I play the music again, but we already have music. She's known, of course, as, um, as Ada Lovelace uh, now and in, uh, in modern times. But when Babbage first met her at age 17... After she had been studying mathematics for many, many years, uh, he had a particular name for her because he was so impressed with her intellect. What did Charles Babbage call her when he first met her and saw how smart she was with mathematics? If you know the answer to today's question, for the love of Pete, pick up your device and call us now. If you're dialing from west to the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Calling from east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're trying to access your analytical engine in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the ever-wonky international line, 877-936-39333. 
Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Church. Like that gravitas there yeah, at the end. Yeah, it's very impressive. Very impressive. Okay. All right. Let's okay. move along. Let's move. I'm, I've got the warning of the week. Warning of the week. This warning is a new feature. Warning of the week. Of, <laughs> Be, we, need, we need warning of the week music. That's right. Beware of tech support, phone tech support. An Apple Store customer came home and then realized what the genius had done. Someone at the Genius Bar went through her phone and found intimate images of her and Ew. texted them to herself, to himself. Oh, no. She'd taken her iPhone in for a repair, and, and she remembered to delete some of the apps before she got to the store, but she didn't really go through and delete all of her pictures. <laughs> <laughs> That's when she went home. Then she went to the store at Bakersfield, California. So many customers do. She trusted her iPhone genius. And he and she you know, she, said it, she said it took a long time to repair her phone and he asked for her asked for her password twice and he really checked their phone out very and she said well he's obviously doing a very thorough job but when she got home she realized that somebody had sent a text message to an unsaved number and that message contained some personal photos she immediately reported to Apple and the employee was fired now the same thing also happened to a Verizon customer now that employee was arrested. In, in 2012, a Best As Buy as should have been. In 2012, a Best Buy customer alleged not only had the repairman copied all of her intimate photos, but he made a CD of them, and then he oh. called and then he called up and invited her to his house to, so he could give her the CD. Oh, my, that's just bizarre. So and evil, 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 evil. evil. That's evil. So that's a warning of the week. Be beware of phone tech support. Okay, hang on a second <laughs> okay. here. We have somebody who would like to play our little game, but we need to play the the, uh, the the appropriate music. Yes, and we need to turn it down a little bit. I guess it's a bit hot there. Let's go to line one, and let's see. We have Ken calling us from Laurel. Ken, good morning. How are you, sir? Wait a minute. All right, Hi. The, Ken, the the board's not cooperating, or maybe it's my fingers that aren't working. Ken, good morning. How are you, sir? Fine. Good. Dr. Schertz okay. asked a question. Early in the show, I talked about Ada Lovelace, and she, of course, had been training in mathematics for many, many years. And at 17, she met Charles Babbage. He was impressed with her brilliance in mathematics. What was the nickname that he gave her? Enchantress of Number. That is that correct. That is correct. Very good, Ken. Very Hang on good. a second. You need to stand by here. We're going to send you back. Into the nerve center, and Andrew will take your uh, take over here, take your information, and we'll send the prize out to you. It is Saturday morning, and you're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County, 104.5 FM. You can, uh, Doc, I need to ask you a question because I forgot. Listen to our podcast by going to Podcast One, right? Yeah. That is correct. Okay, so you can yeah. do that, and you can watch us do the show by downloading the Periscope uh, app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Let's talk about the history of mechanical computers. Let's do that. Because I know everybody's really just chomping at the bit. This is another another great cocktail party topic. I just want another to way to ensure yourself of all the cocktail francs. That exactly right. Now the first mechanical computer. It's a simple counting aid, the abacus. It was invented in Babylonia around the fourth century B.C. You have you you know you've got these these uh, beads that you that you push back and forth mm-hmm. and you count and so. I've I've got a big abacus at home. You know, some you have a big abacus. <laughs> I I do. Some sometimes do, do your guests remark at the size of your abacus? Yeah, I've got <laughs> Listen, my guests are very impressed with my abacus. <laughs> and so and so I have a quite a nice abacus at home which which is all wood. <laughs> I've never all... heard anyone say those words before. <laughs> I have quite a nice abacus. I'll Wait. try that at, at at the local watering hole tonight. And uh, and then the the next mechanical device, which was used for registering and predicting motion of stars and planets, is the Antikythera. Antikythera. It uh, it was made in Greece. That's a Greek name. Antikythera. Antikythera. I think you have it, Doc. Used for registering and predicting the motion of stars and planets. This is dated from the first century B.C. It was discovered off the coast of Greece in a shipwreck. And they and they they brought it in nineteen oh one. It they it, and it even accounted for leap year and and uh, irregularity wow. in the moon's orbits. Then Wilhelm Schickard built the first mechanical calculator in sixteen twenty three. It can work with six digits and carries eight digits across the columns. It worked, but it never quite made it beyond the prototype stage. Stickard was professor at the University of Turbingen in Germany. Then Blas Pascal. I had a letter of intent from there, but you do. Yeah, <laughs> but Blas Pascal built the first. It built the second mechanical calculator in 1642. It had the capacity for eight digits, but had trouble carrying the digits from one place to the next. And its gears tended to jam. You were cranking. Probably mm-hmm. he, he probably was cranking it rather than having it driven with a steam engine. Then Joseph. Marie Jacquard invented an automatic loom that was controlled by punch cards. This was actually the first programmable computer because you could simply change the punch card patterns and you could 
you could uh, actually weave a different pattern in the loom. Charles Babbage conceived the difference engine in 1820. It was a massive steam-powered mechanical calculator designed to print astronomical tables. His attempt to build it, he attempted to build it over the course of 20 years, but never got it to work because it was always jamming. And finally, the British government canceled it after, after 20 years of funding it. After 20 years of funding. There yeah. you go. <clears throat> so it was that's, that's, And then he was ready to retire after that. That's right. Well, he's a typical government contractor. Okay, then his next idea was the analytical engine that was a mechanical computer that could solve any mathematical problem. It used punch cards similar to those used by Jacquard's loom, and it could perform simple conditional operations. And that's, of course, Augusta Ada Byron, By- Byron, the Countess of Lovelace, met Babbage, and she described the analytic engine as weaving algebraic patterns just as the Jacquard loom weaves flowers and leaves. Ah. You see how she brought poetry into I a mathematical and, process. And it didn't take her into a dark place. No, it didn't take her into a dark place. But she had many of dark places in her life, but that didn't, <laughs> that at that moment, the, that was not one, one of them. was down at the casino. Yeah. Now, her published analysis of the analytical engine is our best record of its programming potential. In it, she outlines the fundamentals of computer programming, including data analysis, looping, and memory addressing. And there you go. Everything you want to know about the history of mechanical computers. There you go. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio Heard on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County, 104.5 FM. On the web at stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Now let's talk about the website of the week. Indeed. Mind on Toys. (laughs) It's getting to be that time of year, isn't it? Minds minds on Toys. It's a, uh, both of them are plural, mindsontoys.com. They sell the Digicomp mechanical computer version number two. Is that, oh, so now we're going to talk about it. Okay. I have 
the example here of the uh, Digicomp mechanical computer. It's a six-bit machine, uh-huh. and you program it. It's got these little red tabs in here, and you move these around to program it. And instead of a steam engine, I have this little lever, and it moves things around here. I have an here. exciting idea. Stand by. Yeah, I have this lever here, and this is actually... Now, I bought this device. I bought this device in 2007, and it has little rubber bands that sort of keep the bits in place, and uh, all my rubber bands have broken. So it's not actually working properly quite yet, but... I'm doing my best. And it's got a three-bit output. It's got six bits. I have an idea. What's Why that? don't you move over to this other mic here, So, our, and you could show it to the camera. You could show it to uh, oh, the folks on, will the headphones go that far? Yes, they will. Look at that. Yeah, look at this. Look at this. So we there, have a Periscope exclusive. So okay, here we are. Here we go. This is the, this is the uh, mechanical. Am I on the... Is this, yeah, you're on. Wait. Okay. Oh, wait a minute. Hang on a second. I was going to say it's, I don't hear. There, it. there you are. Now, now, I, now, now you I'm are. On. Okay. Sorry about that. I turned I'm, it on. But this is a this is a, a a tech talk first. Look at this. So you see here, I'm I'm turning the lever here, working my little mechanical engine. Now the output here is in this window A, B, or C. So either the A can be a one or a zero, the B could be one or zero, the C could be one or zero, and so you put in an answer. And uh, you're either going, and the output's either going to be an A, a B, or a C. So it does a very simple calculation. The nice thing about having this particular device is that, uh, you know, a child can put it together, and you actually can understand how computers work. Yeah. Because these things are different bits, positions, and if my rubber bands wouldn't have all broken, <laughs> um, it, this thing would be working nicely because the rubber bands would move these little bars around here mm-hmm. and they would link things up. So uh, when I get home today, I'm going to find little replacement rubber bands. Okay. And I'm just going to sit around and do a few calculations with my- You uh, let me know how that with, works with out, my okay. Mechanical, my mechanical computer. And then what I'll do, I'll go down and I'll- and I'll get my uh, my abacus, and I'll bring it upstairs, and I'll, Your I'll big I'll, abacus, my big abacus, and I'll do a few calculations there. But what this does, if 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 you um, if you get this for your child, they can understand how a computer actually works. See, these are zeros and ones yeah. in here, so you actually begin to see what's going on with this thing. So it's actually a very good, you know. So you 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 run it here, and then you clear it here. So you run it and get the answer. You pull out the clear it and run it. So I'm going to get the rubber bands going, and and then I'm going to do a few very simple calculations, Jim. Yes, you do, and I think you should post that on the Facebook page. Perhaps you should shoot video. I think this is a Facebook Live moment is what yes. this would be. Now, now I can Hang on. i got to turn that mic back now, on. You're now good. I can tell you this, uh, this, this Digicomp version 2, what I did, I talked about this on Tech Talk Radio in a 2007 show. You did? Yes. So I bought this in 2007, but in that show, I simply said, I've ordered it. So so now, 12, 12 years, years later, later. later, I come back to Tech Talk and I show what it looks like uh, after it's been put together. But timely, the trouble is, I waited 12 years, so all my, all my rubber bands rotted timely away. Timely uh, follow-up there. And you know what? It's funny because Ada Lovelace was one of our first profiles in IT. Yes. When and you I, and I first started doing this show 14 years or so and ago. I, and I featured Ada on the same show yes. as this mm-hmm. mechanical computer. Now, this Digicom mechanical computer is version 2, and now it sells for $60. 
I actually paid $58 for it. So it's gone up $2 in the last 12 years. Wow. The first Digicomp computer, version 1, sold for $595 back in 1963. So if you don't mind spending $60, this would be a great gift for any of your children yeah. that are interested in computers. They'll Why really not? understand how a computer works. So there you go. Website of the week. Let's talk about this Supreme Court case between Google and Oracle. Okay. This actually is quite important in terms of our software development processes go. And and there's going to be critical principles that are going to be that are going to come out of this case that I think are going to have huge impact on how people can protect software that they've written. Now the Supreme Court's going to take up the copyright lawsuit between Oracle and Google. Now, Oracle has claimed for years that Google's Android operating system is built on stolen code mm. from the Java software platform. Google argues, however, that it developed its own alternative to the Java code, and they didn't use any of the code that had been written um, as that had been written originally by Sun, and of course, Oracle bought. Java from Sun Microsystems, and it used none of the original Sun code. They developed their own. The lower courts have sided with Google that, yes, indeed, Google independently developed their operating system and did not copy any code from Oracle. However, the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals overturned that decision, and they ruled in favor of Oracle. It concluded that companies can copyright application programming interfaces. Now, this is the key point. I've, got, I've just got to explain it because this has huge impact on the development of software. Okay. When you write software and you want to, and you want to access the software, you want to, you want to um, interact with the software, they have what they call an application programming interface, which basically it's a set of codes that, that basically operates the software in a particular way. Now, what, or what Google did, they rewrote the Java code completely, but they used the same APIs, the same application programming interfaces. That way, their code could be accessed universally by other people because it was a common set of APIs. And what Oracle has said, the APIs can be protected through copyright laws. Now, if that is upheld it's going to make writing interoperable code almost impossible if people huh. can copyright their APIs. Now, Google won multiple, you know, multiple court cases in the, at the lower level, but they lost on this appeal. And the most recent ruling came in 2018 when the court declared that Google had made an unfair use of Java's APIs. Now, Google positioned the Supreme Court in January of 2019 asking it to overturn the appeal court decision for the good of the software industry. I mean, I think actually, this is actually a big deal. So it's worth, it's worth really looking at this a bit. Microsoft, Mozilla, and several other companies are supporting Google's position, arguing that the Federal Circuit Court ruling could destroy developers' ability to freely build new programs that work with existing software platforms. Because you, you interface with existing software platforms using the APIs. And if those APIs are copyrighted, you can't interface with existing software. Internet advocacy group, groups like Public Knowledge and the Electronic 
Frontier Foundation also came out in support of Google. This Oracle and Google dispute has been going on for over a decade. Oracle sued Google after it acquired Java from Sun Microsystems. See, I don't think Sun would have sued Google because I think Sun believes in open source software, and I think they would have let it stand. But Oracle, being greedy as they are, went ahead and sued Google. Now, Google has definitely won the, the they won their patent suit starting back in 2012, and it looked like they were going to win this completely until that decision was reversed. So this Supreme Court case is very important, and I'm hoping that API interfaces cannot be trademarked. Otherwise, it will be a huge setback for software development in general. So let's talk now about how people learn. Yes. Last week I talked about, you know, if you want, how do you develop an educational system that is going to be available for, you know, for, you know, for a long time in the future, even when we don't know what's, what, was, what, what the future holds. And I said you need a, you know, a growth mindset. You need to be able to solve a problem you've never seen before through critical thinking. You need communication skills. You need mindful leadership and you need to know something about how to set your goals and be happy. If you have those five things, you're good for go. You're good for life. But let's talk about the human being. The human being is actually a learning engine. <clears throat> and and why is that? Our DNA is constrained. Our DNA is like our boot up program. It only has so much information. And it, you look at the the size of a human DNA. It's uh, each position is up is up to four proteins. That's two bits per protein location. And so if you'd put it, if you'd take and convert it to a file size, human DNA is 750, 720 megabytes. It fits on a DVD. Only so much information can be contained in that system. So in order to get around the constraints of DNA and in order to build a human being with much more capacity beyond the information carrying capacity of the DNA, we evolved something very clever. We just replicate uh, layers and layers of neural networks that are identical, identical layers of neurons, neural networks. And that doesn't take much information in DNA because you're replicating the same thing over and over and over again. So that means that you've got a huge unprogrammed portion of your brain when you're born. Uh, you know, that's why human beings have to learn how to walk. They have to learn how to see. They have to learn how to hear. They have to learn how to talk. And we are given this tremendous curiosity. So if you look at a baby, a baby is truly a digital, a, a, a learning engine. Mm -hmm. Have you ever noticed how babies just delight in learning to walk? Yes. They, they, they fall down a lot, but they just enjoy themselves. They're oblivious to the fact that they're learning. They get up and try again, get up and try again. They're smiling because they find joy in learning and growing. And then we take these human learning engines... And we put them into classrooms. They've got to hear lectures, and we bore them. And so we have to develop an educational system that will, in fact, use the innate curiosity of the human being, and we have to reignite the joy in learning through project-centric work. I'll continue this next week because yes. this is really something I mm -hmm. truly believe in. Listen, we love, love, love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu and go to the Stratford University website, stratford.edu, and uh, check out those programs. Tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio.
Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.